Welcome back everyone to the Guiding Light Podcast. I'm your host, Shane McClellan, and I have a pretty special guest today. I've got Rondold Smith. Shane, it's really good to be with you and glad to be on this podcast and share with you. Thank you very much. And what's so fascinating about Rondel is what he does for a living. And why don't you explain that to us? Well, I'm a linguist. And uh, what I do is I work with Pioneer Bible Translators. And what we do is work with minority groups around the world who have no scripture in their own language or don't have the whole Bible. And uh, also those that don't have churches. So our goal, of course, is to have people using scripture to change their lives and to make a permanent difference in the world for good. So with all that said, you actually go into societies or even tiny little villages Right. You learn their language, and right. you translate the Bible into their language. Right. Yeah, the process uh, takes a while because uh, we do need to learn their own language, their language. Uh, we need to train them in what the scriptures say, and then they become the translators, and we then check it against the original Greek and Hebrew to make sure it's accurate. Uh, there's another process we add to this that really helps we have two different kinds of consultations. One of them is we take the translated word to a specialist who's done a lot of Bible checking, and he asks a lot of questions and helps us to make sure we're accurate. Secondly, and more as, as important as that, is we take it to the people, uh, women, children, men, young people, old people, set them down, read the scriptures to them, and ask them what it says. And we get all kinds of interesting answers back and we discover where we've done it well and where we do a lot of funny things that have to be changed. And sometimes really, really bad things. So uh, that uh, creates a lot of interesting stories. Well, and the way this relates to our podcast, and we're gonna get back to that in a minute, is when you're traveling, this podcast is a cruising and travel podcast language is a huge deal when you're traveling it is and so we're going to get into that but i do have a story that i remember you telling me or my dad telling me and this is i believe when you were working in papua new guinea and we will talk about papua new guinea more in a little bit but you had them translate it back but you were having trouble because jesus is the blood of the lamb but right. they had no idea what a lamb was oh uh, yeah and so what did y'all end up finally doing with that? Well, the only mammal that they are familiar with in Papua New Guinea of uh, domestic nature is a pig. A pig? Okay. And those have been imported from outside, but they run wild in the jungles. And so to explain what a sheep was and a lamb, uh, we explained it's kind of like a pig with... Uh, it's fur all over it with hairy, hairy pig or furry pig. Okay. So that's what the lamb was, a baby furry pig. And sometimes <laughs> you got to get creative when yep, you the, you're changing languages like that. Right, you do. Um, any other interesting translations, that, stories that you can think of? Well, I, I can tell you a story about the meaning of a translation that comes to mind. Uh, 
we translated for a group who uh, were traditionally Muslim. They knew the Quran, and yet uh, they'd been under communism, so they were kind of what we'd call nominal. Okay. And uh, we read the story of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac to this lady and her kids. First time she'd ever heard it. And uh, at the end of the story, she looked at us and said, wow, I always thought that it was Ishmael that Abraham sacrificed. Which but is it how was, it's written in the Quran, correct? Well, the Quran just says his son. Okay. But it's interpreted as Ishmael in tradition. And then she said, but I guess the Hebrew scriptures are a lot older than the Quran, aren't they? And so we didn't even have to explain. Wow. Well, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it was. She was uh, excited about it. Uh, the most important thing to her was the fact that God was speaking to her in her own language. Right. And she wouldn't listen to it in Russian because the Russians were their oppressors. You know, they got deported in the middle of winter on uh, trains that went across the tundra and they died by the thousands and were put in uh, camps in the Ural Mountains and chopped wood for the Soviet Army died again because of lack of food and clothing and then they were taken to Uzbekistan and confined there. They couldn't leave unless they got a special visa and it was hard for them. And then Perestroika, they got to come back to Crimea in Ukraine okay. and uh, they were delighted they could come home again. Well with that, why don't we go into what, how many countries have you been to? Where all have you been? Well. Where, there's a difference between where I've been and where I've worked. I've been, I counted up in my passport, maybe 30 countries. 30, okay. But, but some of them were on the way. Sure. Uh, but uh, I've gone to work, uh, Janice and I started working in Switzerland in the summers back in 72. First time we'd ever been out of the States. And uh, worked with American Bible Society. We we're writing a new dictionary on Greek words that was kind of like Roger's Thesaurus, the book of synonyms. And then we analyzed the semantic features because that's what you need to translate accurately. And But we got to go and we'd never been out of the country before and uh, took a, a flight to Iceland and then into Luxembourg and got a train down to Switzerland and we were by ourselves. We'd never traveled before. and. Had a lot of interesting experiences. We gave her son Dramamine to <laughs> make him not so active and knocked him out. <laughs> and, okay, real quick, let's yeah, okay. interrupt with where you... Oh, I'm sorry. No, got, no, no, I you're doing off. great. This is fantastic. Um, so you did all that to get there. Yeah. Iceland, did you spend any time in Iceland? No, we didn't, just okay. the airport. The only reason I ask is because yeah. I went to Iceland two years oh, ago, and I've got yeah. a buddy that oh, yeah. is going to be doing a podcast about Iceland, and just I wanted to see what the difference from Iceland from, yeah. you know, 40 years ago. But, okay, yeah. so you made it to Switzerland. So we made it to Switzerland, and we lived there for the summer, and it was terrific. We stayed in an apartment that had been a ski apartment for people in the winter, but in the summer we could get it at a good rate. and. Uh, Worked five days a week. It was a German part of Switzerland. It was uh, close to um, Lausanne. 
and we discovered Gestad is where Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor had a condo. <laughs> <laughs> but we we stayed there, and Janice had to learn some German to go shopping. And so one of her stories was she went down to shop and get eggs, and they had them in a basket with three or four different layers. And so she just started picking them from one to the other, and the clerk laughed at her, and she discovered. One of them was one day old, three days old, five days old, and seven days old, and she was mixing them all up in her basket. And she learned how to say, wie viel kostet es? How much is it? And But then she didn't know the answer. Schweizfrank, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Fimsik, and she, she, she just would give them the money and they would take it. And I've always learned fingers are good. Yeah. Seven yeah. or six yeah, or right. whatever. But, you know, and that's where the phrase books yeah. come right. in. You know, they tell you how to ask these things, but they're not right. the best at, you know, give you, how to you know, oh, well, they should say this answer or this. Well, they, first off, yeah. and I've heard it with us as Americans, with English, with Chinese, it doesn't matter. Right. If you're a native speaker right. of a language and someone else is learning your language, right. you speak too fast. Yeah, that's true. That's you know, true. I mean, across the board, people say, and I right. don't think as Americans we talk that fast. Right. But I've had people, oh, and they're yeah. like, oh, slow down, slow down, slow right. down. Right. And it's the same way, you know, if it's in Spanish, I'm like, yeah. oh my goodness, you're speaking yeah. so fast yeah. or whatever. What I've found is, though, if you will try, they really appreciate it, even if you mess up their language. I would agree with that in almost every instance. Yeah. I'm not sure the French agree with that one, <laughs> yeah, but, <right. laughs> but they You're do. Right. Even a few greetings, you know, yeah, right. you know, good afternoon, and right. and how are you? Thank you. Right. It's amazing how much more gracious that they are yeah. with yeah. you. So okay, so S Switzerland. You right. were talking about where all you've worked. Yeah. Well, Switzerland's our first place, and uh, then uh, our first, my first trip. Uh, for Pioneer Bible Translators was to Papua New Guinea. Which is where I thought you've worked this entire time, yeah. just because when I was growing up, that's it yeah. was all about Papua New Guinea. Well, that's where our first field was, and we had uh, about seven different language projects going over the different translation projects. And Papua New Guinea is so totally different than our way of life. Well, and I'd like to take this time, and you know, 10 minutes or whatever it takes, because Papua New Guinea is so off the radar for almost right. anybody and I right. bet what we say half the people listening to this right now might not even know where Papua New Guinea is much yeah. less what the society is right so what all can you tell us about Papua New Guinea now Papua New Guinea is an island nation that is north of Australia and east of Indonesia it's a mountain covered island plus a number of smaller islands to the north and slightly east of it that are covered with jungle. And it's only the eastern half of the big island, Big right? island, right. The, the nation of Papua New Guinea is only the eastern half. It has 865 languages. Holy smokes. So it's How big of an island are we talking right now, roughly? I don't think the, the I don't, you know, I don't know, but it's not as big as Texas. Okay, so. But maybe California, maybe part of, Three quarters of California, maybe. Three. Okay. There you go for a reference for you guys out there. Um, it's um, mountainous, valleys, and seashore. The people that live along the seashore are related to the Hawaiians. 
Okay. And, uh, Polynesians. Uh, Polynesian, and their uh, language is related. Uh, the people inland speak a, a number of different languages that are were there before the uh, Polynesian-related group got there. Um, they uh, are kind of famous in that uh, World War II, uh, the U.S. troops and the Japanese troops were both on the island. They fought each other there. I went scuba diving in Medang Harbor once. I learned to, got, got my certification there, and uh, uh, we went down and saw a World War II uh, bomber that was on the bottom, about 160 feet down. Nice. And uh, we saw sharks swim by too, so. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> Um, it uh, the people uh, did not get along. They're known for cannibalism, even and, to this day. Well, I talked to a man in a village uh, who uh, first time I went there, and I took my son Darren with me. And how old was Darren at that time? A uh, high schooler. He was okay. a sophomore, going into sophomore year, and uh, we got. A, a gathering in the one of my co-workers homes in the evening and uh, they fed us sago which is uh, the kind of like a cornstarch that comes out of the center of the sago pine it doesn't taste like anything but kind of boiled meal and uh, one of the jokes that uh, Darren tells about me is they asked me how I liked it and I said well I think it'd be better with strawberries I'd say hot sauce, but yeah, right. <laughs> but um, they asked one of the questions they asked us was tell us about the manor and the moon. They had heard about that. I told them that story, and then they said, "Do you have any questions for us?" And uh, uh, William Butler was there. He was translating for us, of course, because they they were speaking in Pidgin English, and their own language, Wadham, was quite different. And so William was using Pidgin for us to talk with each other and so they I asked them I said tell me do you know about the practice of cannibalism here and one of the older men said yes when I was a boy I ate human flesh he said somebody tricked me and gave it to me tricked them yeah okay and I said well what did it taste like <laughs> he said oh it was sweet like pig like pork <laughs> so uh, uh, that was quite revealing out there in that village. Uh, one of the other interesting things was that um, uh, for us Westerners, the women all went topless. And they, uh, they would nurse their children too. But one night, they got together and played volleyball out there. <laughs> and Darren said, this really is different than Illinois. <laughs> Uh, well, and I remember you way back when, but you were telling me a story because, I mean, and we're not just talking mountains and valleys. We're talking like almost straight up, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, somewhat very steep. And you were telling me there were people, entire villages that, right. I mean, I don't know, 10 miles apart or whatever, yeah. and then never even heard of the other village. Yeah, yeah. That it's that isolated. It's very isolated. Like one village we went to, we went on a plane. And the plane, the uh, because it was so steep, the uh, airstrip was very short. Okay. So it was uphill. So we landed on an uphill runway, and of course the plane slows down faster going uphill. <laughs> and then you take off going downhill. Yep. 
Okay. Zoop. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, and what else can you tell us about Papua New Guinea? Well, the people are uh, believe in the spirits, and they are constantly in fear that they'll do something that the spirits will harm them for. And they know that they believe that their crops are all dependent upon sacrificing to the spirits. So in gardens, you'll see little offerings in the corner to some god or some spirit. And um, when, they, when they hear about the gospel and about Jesus' power over the spirits, and about the fact that God loves them, they can hardly believe it because they've never seen spirits as being helpful. And uh, they are quite excited about it and join us in the effort to uh, translate and distribute scripture to their own people. So yeah. you said, what, 875? Well, we're. We don't know for sure, but when we started, they told us 865. 865, and, and how many of y'all translated? Oh, we've just done probably over there, we're doing about seven or eight right now. It takes, for in Papua New Guinea, it takes longer to translate because the people there, they're the ones that know the language. So they have to be, first of all, those that are translators, they have to learn what the message of a book is. Let's take the Gospel of Mark. So you first of all teach them and you take them through a pidgin translation. And talk pidgin is uh, pidgin English. It's, uh, for example, name belong me, Rondell Smith. Uh, one of them name belong you. Name belong you, Shane? Ah, me pele got one pele meri belong me. Meri name Janice. Janice na me got two pele pikinini, Darren na Andre. Okay. So you can tell. Right. So you're what it using. Says. Are some of those native words and some English words? No. Well, they're almost all English, but they are in a pattern of speech that is like some of their native languages. Okay. So uh, they developed it with with the ships that would come and trade with them, so that they could trade. And, Interesting. Uh, and there okay. is a Bible in Tukpizen. Okay. And it's very big. So this is not a language you all brought into them. They actually no. got this from uh, they had trade over the centuries. Yeah. But it's not their native language, and they don't talk about everything in it. Right. Yeah. It's trade. Some villages are quite conversant, and some are remote, and you're right. It's, it's so different depending on where you are there. So when was the last time you were back in Papua New Guinea? Well, uh, since I, I served as president in 18 years, and... Um, um, I went back for the dedication of the Aruamu New Testament, and that was before I left presidency, and that would have been 2004 or five, I, th I believe, so okay. last time I was there. So it's been 14 years or you know somewhere yeah. around there, yeah. but I think a lot of the information you'll be able to give us will be relevant. What travel tips can you give us about Papua New Guinea, about uh, language in Papua New Guinea, or anything that can help anybody that might want to travel there? Well, to get there, you usually fly to LA, Hawaii, uh, then uh, maybe to Medang, or you might fly to, we, we flew to Guam once because of uh, 
traffic problems, air traffic problems. Janice and I did, and that was an interesting <laughs> way to go. We liked it. Um, Australia often, before you go there. Um, sometimes you have to get out uh, and stay overnight. We did in Australia once. Um, I think the important thing in travel for me is number one, I try to know every stop and where I'm going to be and make sure I have all the information I need. I try, if possible, to have someone that I know meet me at the airport when I get there. Usually can't do that on the way. Right. But I try to have things all blocked out in my head and ha have my visas and everything ready. Um, I do find it important to create uh, more a, a personal connection with the people that you're working with. The stewardesses, the ticket people, the pilots if they come by, and basically thank them for the work they're doing because they often come to your rescue then it, when you if you have questions that, that can't be solved. That would be a good advice regardless of where yeah. you go. And, and even on the airplane I try to I feel like this is part of my service to, uh, to people is to create a personal connection in the world so it's not all a kind of guarded suspicious dog-eat-dog uh, -dog kind of environment and uh, I hear the most interesting stories from people about their life and uh, I, I usually initiate it with giving them my name and finding out their name and then I will ask them if they know what their name means and because I'm a linguist I often can tell them what it comes from what it means and that creates a, a trust a personal connection and then from that you learn their story. I often ask them what they do, what their vocation is. Okay, so let's do an example. Uh -huh. And I mean, you've done this before for me, but okay. Shane McClellan, okay, what Shane. does that mean? Well, Shane is a uh, Celtic version of John. It comes from the Hebrew Johan, which means God is gracious. Okay, and you do last names also, or is it mostly yeah. just oh, first both. name? Yeah, okay. McClellan is obviously, um, uh, I was going to say Scottish, but it's Irish name. Yeah, my family came from the Scottish side, but... Oh, did they? But you don't spell it M-A-C. Usually, yeah. Scottish is M-A-C, but it probably okay. got adjusted when it came At to some States. point. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's what our family history says, yeah. you know? Yeah, like, no, I... But the Irish and the Scottish are so intertwined oh, they are. back in history. Because so. all the northern Scottish um, uh, clans actually came from Ireland about two to four hundred AD okay and settled there and then the southern Scots who were already the southern Celts who were already there uh, generally don't have the Mac or Muck like I have uh, Scottish ancestors whose name was Rossborough which came from Roxborough Castle okay in southern Scotland that's just a place name where they lived and uh, so anyway, it, it's a way to start a conversation, sure. and then I would say, well, what do you do? So, Shane, what do you do? What's uh, your vocation? I'm a boat captain. Oh, wow. Tell me about that. And off you go. And yeah. And I, then usually you'll, you'll say, well, what do you do? And then I tell them I'm a linguist, and I explain what I do, and we get to discussing about many things that way. 
and that I've met so many interesting people and heard so many interesting stories that way that I consider that one of the real benefits of travel. Absolutely. I mean, Meeting the people. Well, it's either about seeing the sights. Yeah, that's or, right. Oh, I love that too. You know, which the sights to me help you learn the history of a oh, place. Yeah. yeah. And meeting the people. Right. And with a combination of the two is where you get kind of the culture of how right. how they got to where they are and what they're like at this point. Exactly. Like when we were in Switzerland, we were just uh, the second, third year, we are north of Interlaken. And the great thing about it, we would work in a room on language and translation issues, technical stuff all week with a fellow and his family from South Africa, um, uh, the head of the program, Eugene Nida, who lived, uh, worked in New York, and then Janice and I were from Illinois. And uh, then on the weekends we'd hike, and we'd go up the pass, we'd go to the mountaintops, and uh, sometimes go skiing. I could rent skis and get her in a bus and go up to uh, uh, ski on the Diablo Ray wow. uh, snow. And I, I, some of the Germans on the bus kidded me because it was summer down in the valley where we <coughs> lived. And they said, oh, you're going to go skilaufen auf die Steinen. You're going skiing on the stones. <laughs> but they knew, of course, I was headed up to Diablo Ray. When I can only imagine, I mean, that was 46 years ago, how much has changed <laughs> since then. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, let's get back to Papua, uh, New, Papua New Guinea. Okay, so we're back in Papua New Guinea, and yeah. they, the societies there are not, I mean, they're very long. They've been around for a very, very long time, but they haven't right. had any monuments or historical buildings, so you're not going right. there as a tourist right. or a traveler to right. see sites it's right. more about seeing these cultures and I right. assume going into these villages right yeah these these villages are interesting they're small maybe 50 hundred people made up of several major families I'd, I'd say most of them are less than a hundred though um, down along the rivers they live up on houses on stilts because of flooding of course many mosquitoes they live off of gardens that they plant, taro root, and they hunt. Uh, they cut down sago palms and get the starch meal out of the center of them. They will, um, well, we've got a, a basket up there. It's kind of like a cone that we brought back. Okay. And it it's a fish trap. Okay, gotcha. Because it's got uh, the strands reaching down on the fish can go through it one way but when they come back the other way the strands are facing in their face right. and um, so um, they live on very basic stuff uh, they will hunt birds I've eaten bird of paradise <laughs> <laughs> in Papua New Guinea and um, how's it taste well like chicken <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where would you stay if someone went, wanted to travel there? Tourists would probably fly into uh, Port Moresby, the capital. You can get hotels there. You probably can take some popular tours. I mean, tours led by tour guides. And it would be around Port Moresby. It might even be up into the mountains. Um, 
Madang Harbor is where Madang is where we, which is on the north coast. Port Morrissey is on the south coast. You fly over the mountains to get there, and it's got some nice hotels along Madang Harbor, and uh, you can take boat rides and you can do uh, scuba diving, which is they have people there to train you, and if you don't have a, a certification. certification, yeah, and you can rent the equipment. Uh, but it's it's beautiful and uh, touristy. But to go out in the villages, uh, there may be tours. I I don't know, but I've always gone out with my coworkers. Okay. And we'll get on the back of a truck and ride out to an area, and then maybe get on a boat, a motorized canoe, and go up the river. And uh, Janice and I went once and. Uh, we had to climb up a muddy bank of a river to get mm -hmm. to the village and uh, uh, slide down. <laughs> so a waterproof bag may be helpful in this case. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. When you were first there, yeah. I don't want to come off bad here, but how primitive was? I mean, they had seen airplanes. They, I mean, I'm assuming they're still using bow and arrows, or have they gone to guns by that point? I never saw a gun. Okay. Uh, when I was there, um, yeah, we would call it primitive because they are subsistence livers, hunters and gatherers, yet. Um, they, they know something about government. Uh, one of my friends went hunting with them in the uh, jungle once, and the men sat around the fire at night complaining about the government intruding in their lives. Okay. And they're just really complaining. And uh, he said, um, what's the problem? He said, they tell us we can't beat our wives anymore. Okay. Or they're going to fine us. And our marriages are going to fall apart. We can't have a decent family life if we can't beat our wives when they're not doing right. And then they looked at him and said, well, you don't beat your wife. How do you do it? And he said, well, I'm Irish background. We used to beat our wives, but we found a better way. We learned about Jesus, and our wives learned about Jesus, and now we treat each other right. <laughs> so it was an opportunity to share a little bit of the gospel. Yeah, I mean, every opportunity you can. Yep. Okay, so, I mean, we've been talking about Papua New Guinea for 20 minutes an hour yep. or so. Yeah. Where else, after you left Papua New Guinea, where else have you worked? Well, the next place we worked was in Africa. First of all, West Africa, then East Africa, then uh, uh, Crimea, which is up in Eastern Europe, uh, Ukraine. And that's the Ukraine and Russia. They're having yeah, a big right. issue right now yep. over there. Oh, yeah. And Siberia. I've been to Siberia and we worked there. Where else? The Ukraine? Yeah, Ukraine. That was. Crimea is a part of Ukraine, right? Okay, so right. when you have been telling me about the Ukraine, that you were down in that area? Yeah, right. Okay. Oh yeah, quite a, quite a few times because okay. that that was a project we took on now 18 years ago, and that was we got the whole we our our translator specialist there was a Russian who had moved his family had moved to Moldova, and he worked with university people, professors there, and they got the whole Bible done in 16 years. And that's a record. Wow. Sometimes it takes that long in New Guinea for just the New Testament, which is much shorter. And the whole Bible takes years. 
so just let's jump you know yeah. a tangent real right. quick the right. the ukraine russia right. issue that's going on with um that area what any thoughts on that well here's what happened the eastern part of ukraine and crimea during the soviet era had a lot of native russians moved there and worked there they stayed there so the official languages of ukraine were both russian and ukrainian western ukraine is primarily ukrainian and um, the excuse that was given politically for the russians to move in was these are russian people who really wanted to be in russia and uh, russia had already by permission of the ukrainian government a uh, uh, naval base uh, in Sevastopol, Sevastopol, which is on the western side of the Crimean Peninsula. So they had military station there. I've been very close to it, not gone in. But uh, uh, when they decided that they were going to take over, they just, the group, the armies just marched from Sevastopol to Simferopol, the capital of Crimea and uh, took over and then they had an election that uh, where the people uh, who voted approved it but not everybody voted <laughs> yeah i'm sure it was a completely honest vote right well <laughs> politically we won't get into that but <laughs> so what do you think is going to happen to that area in the next 10 years i don't see any change okay. taking place uh, i've been back since the change and to get there today, instead of being able to fly into um, Kiev and go down or drive down from Kherson uh, or fly from Istanbul to, to uh, uh, Simferopol, you have to go to Moscow. And so I had to get a Russian passport to get there and it, everything went fine. And there actually have been a lot of physical improvements in the airports in the town since the Russians took over uh, uh, Sevastopol, which is the or, or Simferopol, the capital of Crimea. Well, talking about the Russian visa, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, of course, you know that Dad and I went to yeah. right. um, Russia two years ago, and he has been on a previous uh, podcast, and we talked about that. But yeah. um, he he came to you, didn't he, about some of the, the what should I do in Russia? How do I get a uh, visa and that type of thing yeah and what's the best advice you have for getting a visa for Russia which is not easy it's about as hard as I hear getting a US visa for non-US people can be well probably so I I didn't have any trouble I just went to Travisa uh, website I mean to app I have for getting visas and that's where I was going because I use them also yeah and that's Travisa, and I'll have a yeah. link in this um, yeah. the comment section down below. Yeah. But and I think we paid, you know, like four to five hundred dollars yeah. and got it expedited. We got a three-year, yeah. multi-year entry. But right. to me, my opinion, and I think you agree, it's just not worth the hassle of doing it yourself. Just go through oh, this yeah. one company. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It takes a long time if you send it in to the uh, try to do it yourself. I wouldn't do that. So, there you go. There's some advice on that. Um, let's go languages overall. I'm very curious, and I don't know the answer to this. Yeah. How many languages do you speak? 
I don't speak very many. I'm a linguist. Linguists basically analyze languages. Okay. We help people develop accurate alphabets, simple alphabets to represent their languages and dictionaries and grammars and uh, analysis that way. But I, um, speaking wise, I've not learned many. I, I learned to speak some German. I had learned to write it and read it for my PhD dissertation work and French, same thing. I had to take, take it at Indiana University and learn French and German, which I enjoyed. I already knew Greek and Hebrew and uh, to read but when we worked in the German part of Switzerland, then I worked on learning German. And I just did that basically by need. Okay. You know, wherever I needed, I would look up. I, I knew what to say often written-wise, and I could pronounce it, so I, I worked on that. And, uh, Papua New Guinea, I did learn some Pidgin English, which I showed you. And when I travel in Africa, knowing I'm able to read the French. I'm not good at speaking it uh, or understanding it, but uh, that helps a lot when you go to get your tickets and so forth. And Russian, I I can read the Cyrillic alphabet, and I'm <laughs> learning some Russian. Ya gavaru paruski and ya ne panyamaya paruski. What are you saying there? I'm saying I can speak Russian, and then I said I don't understand it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know in the travels that I've done. Yeah. For the most part, just knowing English, you can get along. Yeah. You can usually either find someone that knows or do some sort of fake sign language to figure it out, yeah. pointing right. uh, pictures right. in a right. restaurant type right. of thing. But with that said, being a linguist, yeah. what advice would you give the listeners on going to a country that doesn't speak English? Well... I try to, to look up on Google the alphabet and learn to read the signs. Uh, I just got back from Poland. I never learned Polish or even studied it. And uh, Polish has a very good spelling system in the sense that it's consistent, unlike English. Right. But it's crazy in the sense that many, many, they've got many two consonants together that will be one sound. I mean, we have that in English with SH, but Polish has a lot of uh, and they'll put a little mark under a vowel and that means there's an N following it. And um, so now it, it took Poland, me Now is Poland, is it uh, Cyrillic also? No, okay. they use a uh, Latin-based alphabet like we do in English and um, it is a language related to Russian. Okay. It's Slavic, but it's a different version of it. And so if you know Polish, you don't know Russian, but it's easier because the grammar is similar. Okay. And, and the sounds are, are similar too, but uh, the spelling is totally different. Well, and I told you my, you're saying learn, you know, take a, the alphabet, and I yeah. told you my story about being in in Moscow, especially yeah. trying to use the subways. Yeah, exactly, and how Google Earth was dead on with the directions yeah. everywhere we want to right. go. Right, except they gave me the subway stations in English yeah, and not in Russian. Right. right, and I was completely lost because yeah. I mean, you really you don't even have the same number of letters sometimes, no, or most not. of the time. Right. And Russian alphabet is very good in the sense that it's basically one letter, one sound. Uh, and if you 
take a little time to learn the Russian alphabet, you probably could do the transliteration from the English okay. into Russian. And the words we see in English is yeah. basically how the word sounds in yeah. Russian. It's just right. using right. our Latin alphabet. Yeah, it'd be a little different. Like Moscow is Moskva okay. in Russian. And there would be differences like that. Uh, in Russian, the ending of names is usually O-V or O-V-A. But it's pronounced, O-V is pronounced off. And it, it's what's called a patronymic. It's the name of the family name. But a, a daughter will be Ova. So, like Bonhof, that which is German, but it's got the off on it, would be Bonhofa. Okay. And many of the streets have the Ova or Ava endings on them, which is feminine. Is that similar to like Spanish and yeah. French? They have the La and the Li. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's, it's feminine and masculine. But the other interesting thing in Russian, well, there's a couple of interesting things about the names. Uh, the formal way to say Mr. is to use the father's name with a Ovich at the name of it. So you would be Shane Bilovich uh, or Williamovich. Okay. And so you would actually say my first name and then my dad right. with and that, That's a formal way to address you. Okay. Instead of saying Mr. McClellan, you okay. say Shane uh, Williamovich. Williamovich. Uh, the other um, thing about names is there's a lot of abbreviations. Vladimir becomes Vlad. There's a lot of Vlads. There's, they say that you learn 12 names in Russian and you'll probably have 80% of the population named that way. Okay. And the, the girls would not be Vlad, they'd be Vlada. Vlada, uh -huh. so Vlad and Vlada. Right. So, and we're running low on time, but do you have anything that you want to talk about or you think that we should know about languages, about any of the places you've been, any stories you want to tell? Well, uh, let me say this about languages. There are, we started out thinking there are about 6,000 some languages in the world. And I did a research project at any university with um, my professor who was writing a book on it. And at that time we thought there were 6,085. But today we know there's over 7,000. So we're finding more as we go. And we define language is where there's a lack of at least 70% intelligibility between variants of the same language. So we're talking a thousand new languages that have been located in right. say the last 50 right. years. Yeah. What part of the world are most of these coming from? They're, they're all over and what they are is things that are called dialects that are so different that they really are linguistically their, their language. Not to go through the whole thousand but right. can you give us a couple of examples? Okay, there's a group in Dagestan that are called the Dargin. And officially, politically, culturally, they're all considered one language. And they have a, a classic language, uh, a, a variety, of a standard Dargin. But when you go out into the villages and do survey, you discover that there may be as many as 20, 25 separate dialects that cannot understand enough of the other dialect to be called uh, wow. a, a, a dialect. And where was that? That's in Russia and Dagestan. In Dagestan? Yeah. Right. Okay. 
Okay, so any anything else with languages? There are 1,600 that have no Bible, no scripture at all. And there are 900 that have neither Bible or church. And at the rate of translation that's going on now by all the Bible agencies across the world, it's very possible at, at this rate that by 2050 there should be a project for translation going on in them. For every language. For every language. Wow. By 2050. That's just fascinating. Yeah, it is. But it, it's it, it's seemingly impossible, and you know there are a lot of variables. Politics, sure, but you're war, to the point where you're starting to see the light weather. at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Where you right. this project might actually get done. Right. Um, so before I sign off, anything else you want to tell our listeners here? Well, it's interesting to look back at the Gospels and hear uh, what Jesus said to them. At one point in Matthew, he said, This good news of mine will be preached to every language, every ethnic group, and then the end will come. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. And I see, I, before we go, I do want to throw one story out for you. And this is, I had a friend in Turkey and we went to mm. um, church and she is a non-practicing Muslim. Mm -hmm. And we, she found a church uh, for Christmas service for mm. us, which was very nice. Of course, it had to be, we could only find in Turkish or Armenian. Right. Of right. All oh, yeah. things. Right. And so we went to a Turkish one. And she had to translate what they said to me, uh -huh. and then I had to explain to her what it meant. What it meant. Yeah. And they had in the back, they had a rack of free Bibles. Oh uh, yeah. And they, you, she's like, "There's something about an Old Testament and a New Testament." And she's translating this uh -huh. from Turkish. Right. And I'm like, you know, I'm explaining. Yes, this one's the following the right. um, the New Testament's Jesus. The yeah, Old right. Testament is the right. um, Israeli people. Right and stuff and I'm like you know they're saying it's free so you should go ahead and get one if you want right. to read it right. and she's like oh no no I don't want it in Turkish I want to get it in the original English oh. <laughs> and I'm like well just so you know yeah, right. right yeah so we had a little discussion on that yeah but that's good that's good interesting anyways um, thank you all for listening and we had Rondell Smith with us and we're gonna say goodbye thank you very much for being with us this is Shane McClellan with uh, the Guiding Light Podcast, and I look forward to having you again. And have a great day. May you have fair winds and following seas. Uh -huh.